we're celebrating this month, Emmanuel, that God is with us. It's kind of a video to kind of get us back into the Christmas motif this morning. We are taking this month to explore the story of Christmas and really just one theme in that story, and that is the king is here. Now, my intention this morning was if you get a little sleepy in case it gets warm in here, Rodney was going to walk by. <laughs> well, I'll see Rodney, so there went that idea. I guess I just have to be more interesting. We're using the opening chapter, and next Sunday we'll get to the chapter 2 of Matthew as our text, because Matthew opens with a statement so that we don't have to wonder what his theme is. We know what Matthew is going to be all about. He says this in verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There it is, thesis statement, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew is very deliberate because he says these two people with whom God made two unconditional covenants in the history of Israel are in the line of, of, uh, of Jesus. There is David with this very Jewish covenant to rule and reign over Israel. And there's Abraham, a much more broad covenant that says, I will bless the world through Abraham. And it seems rather strange to us that Matthew then moves straight into this genealogy, the, you know, the list of a bunch of dead people. And he's like, he goes right into this list, which means nothing to us, but we discovered, you know, what he's really doing is pulling one finger of his glove off at a time, and he gets the glove in hand, and he says, and then came Jesus, and he slams it down, ticked the box. His pedigree is perfect. He is a legitimate heir. He can be Messiah. He fits. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. So with that box out of the way, Matthew moved on to the story of the, of the birth of Jesus. And last week we discovered that Matthew tells the story from the viewpoint of Joseph. And he tells the story kind of as he moves through. And if you step back a little bit, it, there's something he wants to tell us. And he wants us to make sure that, you know, there's this scandal in the pregnancy of Mary. And then there's this scandal about, you know, God is with us. And as you read the Old Testament carefully, you understand God isn't with people. I mean, he's separate. He's got these barriers. You don't just approach him. And this God who put up all kinds of barriers to guard and to protect his holiness is now living among men and women. If you don't see the scandal of that, you haven't read very much in your Old Testament. And so today we want to explore what Matthew says about this king and the thing he's really saying in this text is born of a virgin. Hmm. On Christmas Sunday, I want to look and see what Matthew says really the big truth about Mary. Because Mary is there and what does he say? Well, let's read the text carefully. How many times does she come up? If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to read the whole thing. We'll be done in Revelation in half an hour or so. <laughs> Matthew 1, 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. 
because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until he gave birth to a son, until she gave birth. Well, anything's possible these days, they say, but let's stick with the text. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. That's it. And then you're into the Magi. You're into the, into, you know, the wise men coming, which we'll do next Sunday morning. The whole, what is this whole thing about the virgin birth? What is it? What does it mean? What's its purpose? In this quote from Isaiah, what's going on with Isaiah to pr predict a virgin birth? And so I want to explore as well a second side. There is a second side to God with us. I think it can mean something to us that maybe we haven't thought of before. And especially as modern readers, that's different. So I got lots of questions about this virgin birth thing. I hope I'm asking the same questions you're asking because I'm going to answer my questions and hopefully they're yours as well. So let's talk. First question, number one, why does Matthew mention the virgin birth? What's it even, why is it even here? See, Matthew's a birth, account of the birth of Jesus. It's much shorter than Luke's account. We're going to read Luke's account um, uh, Friday night. 20-some verses. It's much longer, much more full. You got, you got the inn, you got the shepherds, you got all that. We like that. That's Luke's version. But if you step back from the text of Matthew, what's he doing? I think it's kind of clear that there's two things going on. He needs to push back on something, and he needs to promote something. Remember, he's writing this gospel after Jesus Christ has come, lived, died, and rose from the dead and gone. And he writes to a people who are wrestling with the issue of, uh, do I really believe he's the Messiah or not? How is he any different from these other people who claim to be Messiah these days? And there were a bunch. So Matthew, he's got to push back on something and promote something else. And so he goes to Mary and her role in the arrival of Jesus. And what is exactly is important? What's important to him is that Mary was a virgin. Hmm. It seems important to, Ma to, to, to Matthew to make sure we knew very clearly that Jesus was born of a virgin. He needs to push back, I think, on the rumors of scandal that would have surrounded this, this thing. 50, 60 years later, you know, they're hearing these things. But, well, what was really going on there? And he implies, really, that some of you have probably heard these rumors, that things were maybe just a little bit sketchy at the beginning. 
And Matthew says, no, there's no scandal. If you know the truth, what happened was holy and sacred. And then he also needs to establish something right up front, which is Jesus is the Son of God. He is heir to the throne. He has the authority to serve as Messiah. He has the uniqueness to serve as the the Messiah. And so Matthew takes the birth account and he uses it to push back on any hint of scandal and to promote the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. His character can be trusted because he's related to God. Second question, what does the Bible mean by virgin birth? I mean, really, what is he talking about? Because if Matthew wants us to know one simple fact about Mary, it is that she was a virgin when Jesus was born. So what's the virgin birth? Did God then have relations with, with, with Mary? Well, no Protestant, no Catholic in 2,000 years has ever argued that. The text seems rather clear. It says Jesus was conceived apart from physical sex. What happened was the work of God. Luke is clear. Matthew's clear. Three phrases in Matthew let us know this. Verse 18, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. So so what's Matthew saying? What's the rest of the New Testament saying? He is saying right up front, Jesus Christ came to earth apart from the normal means of procreation. The virgin birth is the means of the incarnation, God becoming flesh. How? Through a virgin birth. And once the incarnation happens, Jesus is of the flesh forever. He doesn't revert. Now he's got a resurrected body. He's still got that body. It began at his birth and it continues into the future. And Jesus was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the implication is clear. He was born of her without Joseph's participation. The baby is from the Holy Spirit, not about man. And nothing more is said. That's all he says. The emphasis on the fact, really, of the divine generation of the child rather than the method. And Matthew has already carefully protected the virgin birth in his genealogy. Matthew 1, verse 16 says this in the NIV, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Now, the NIV, they've made the interpretation for you. Listen to it in the NASB. It's much clearer in the New American. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. The husband of Mary, and then you know what he does? You know your Greek really well, right? By whom? Feminine singular. Could have been plural, whatever. He doesn't use that. He chooses it feminine singular. So Matthew clearly says that Jesus was born of Mary only and not of any union between Mary and Joseph. And that's all we know. Joseph had no part in the physical conception of the Savior. Now, the idea of the virgin birth, let's be honest, it's, you know, usually targeted as passe these days. Back in the early 20th century, if you believed in the virgin birth, you were a little bit crazy. It was kind of a flashpoint between the fundamentalist and the modernist movement. 
And many scholars work today to deny it or to downplay the virgin birth. Yet it's, a, it's not an optional plank in our theological statement. It's important on several levels of our faith. I mean, it touches, can God actually supernaturally intervene in this world? Do we believe in the supernatural or not? How big is our God? How reliable is the Scripture? If it's wrong here, if Matthew's just diluted here, how, come we don't know he's, how do we know he's not diluted in other places? And what's the plain meaning of Scripture? How do you interpret it? Can you believe what the Bible has to say? It's important. But I have another question, number three. What's the purpose of the virgin birth? Why? Some would say it was necessary to preserve the sinlessness of the Savior. In other words, the interpretation is the sin nature is passed along through the male. From generation to generation through the husband. Now, I know that might be very tempting, and it might be true, but doesn't it seem that if God could overshadow and, and bring this baby out of a virgin, he could also protect the sinlessness of the Savior through, through normal procreation? So what is the purpose? I would say the purpose, and I would argue that the purpose is as a, it, it serves as a sign of the uniqueness of who Jesus is. I mean, how early and why, why, why how early and, and how widely known was the virgin birth among the early followers of Christ, we don't know. We do know by the time Matthew was written, people now they know. And when Matthew and Luke were written, from that point on, it became a rather crucial doctrine of the early church. So how does it inform our theology? Well, it shows us that our Redeemer is fully human and, full, and, and fully God. It shows us that God took the initiative in our salvation. Isn't it just Joseph's initiative or Mary's? God stepped in. Salvation is a gift. And before the incarnation, the Son of God, many had tried to bring salvation. But God's plans worked out in His timing when He stepped into human history. And He did it in His way. And you see in the virgin birth, the power of God contrasted with the weakness of and the powerlessness of human beings to, to bring about their own deliverance. We couldn't do it, so God did. But then in this context, question four, Matthew quotes Isaiah. And the way he says it, it's another box to be ticked off. So what, is, what was Isaiah's prophecy really all about? Let's explore this a little bit. Maybe, maybe uh, Rodney should walk by about now. I don't know. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, it says first in Matthew 1.22, let's, let's see what he says. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. That prophet is Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, last week we explored one side of what Matthew said, God with us, this God who protected his glory and his honor from sinful man. But this morning, I want to explore another side of that statement. I want to begin by, by putting this quote into its context, which I find very interesting. And then we can look back through the eyes of the first century reader and see what did they also hear when they heard those words. So Matthew quotes Isaiah 7. You've got to turn back to Isaiah 7. It's not going to be on the screen. Isaiah 7. 
Too much to read. The basic setting, when this was written, Isaiah uh, goes to the, the king of, of Judah. Okay, there's two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and then, so you're looking at it this way, so then Assyria's over here. And Assyria and Israel got together, and they're like causing trouble for Judah in the south. And so this coalition of Israel and Syria brought King Ahaz, who is the grandson of Uzziah, the good king, Ahaz, not so much. And so let's see what happens. Isaiah 7, when Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, so he's the grandson of Uzziah, the king, you know, from Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, you know, that the same king. King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, so the, the Israel and, and Syria, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. They attacked them, but they couldn't overpower it. Now the house of David was told Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken. They're afraid as the trees of the forest that are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. That's all they are. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let's invade Judah, let's tear it apart, blah, 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 blah. Then he says in verse 7, yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's what God says. It will not take place. It's not going to happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. They're going to be gone. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son, if you do not, blah, blah, blah. Okay, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. God says, go for it, Ahaz. What do you want to know? I'm going to destroy these two people. You don't have to worry about them. So ask, give me, tell me, what do you want me to do? But Ahaz said, verse 12, I will not ask because I will not put God to the test. Really? God says, Get, ask for a sign. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. He doesn't want to be indebted to God. He doesn't want that to God to solve this thing. I can do it. Then Isaiah said, here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You didn't ask one? Well, I'm going to give you one anyway. Verse 14, you know this verse. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, about 12 years old, so within however long it takes someone to, to fall in love, get married, have a kid, whatever, and the kid to grow up, about 12, to know right, the difference between right and wrong, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In other words, get the sign. And what the sign was, was this young, he uses the word for young marriageable age woman, a girl, a teenager. It's not necessarily a virgin, but it could be a virgin. It probably includes that concept. 
And there's a hint, though, that even though Isaiah says, here's this sign for you, Ahaz, then Matthew comes along and says, yeah, but you know, in the Greek New Testament, they use the word specifically for virgin. The Septuagint uses that verb. That's how they understood. That's how I understood it. So it's like Isaiah's talking up here, but God's talking down here. Yeah, it's a young girl of marriageable age, but in reality, Matthew says, it's a virgin. That's what he's talking about. Because when Matthew quotes this prophecy, he uses the more precise term, virgin, rather than interpreting it rather broadly as you want to excuse away this virgin concept. Matthew tells us that Isaiah also has in mind this miraculous conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's two layers, as there often are in prophecy. And he uses the definite article, the virgin. He's like, there's a specific one in mind. And he identifies Jesus as the one who would come through Mary's womb. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord said to the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, the eternal son of the eternal God, who has existed as one with the Father from all eternity, and the one who created the universe would come in human flesh through the womb of Mary. That's what the angel told Joseph. That's what this is all about. And we explored last week the kind of the scandal of this text that God is with us when he protects his holiness. But there's another way to look at that. God is with us. You see, from the day of Isaiah to the days of Matthew and Jesus, something has changed in Israel. It's the relationship between them and God is not the same. And the first century Jew would look back at that history and have another unique reaction to the phrase, God with us. Think about it a little bit. God was now with his people again. That's what Matthew is saying. The bearers, yeah, they've been removed. But when was the last time that God was actually with his people? You probably don't remember, but if you're a Jew and living in the first century, you probably remember the text very clearly. It was a very sad scene. It was described by the prophet Ezekiel as the Babylonians came in and ransacked the city of Jerusalem. And Isaiah, or Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel 10, 18, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. And the passage goes on to describe the leaving of the glory of God. The presence of the Lord left the temple. God is no longer there. And what have they been looking for ever since? The presence of God among them. Some sign, some reassurance. Ezekiel wrote that. It was about 586 B.C., when the glory departed the temple. Now it's about 6 B.C. So for 580 years, they had sought and looked for the presence of God in their midst. And they tried to find him over and over and over again when they were allowed after the Babylonian captivity to return from Babylon. 
And they rebuilt their city and they rebuilt their temple. Do you remember what happened when the young people were there at the dedication of the temple rejoicing and the older people were what? They were wailing. They were crying because they could remember the grandeur of Solomon's temple. And as they stand there, what doesn't happen? The glory of the Lord does not come back. He didn't return. Back in Babylon during the days of Esther, you see the hand of God at work, but there is no glory. There's not even a mention of His name. In 330 B.C., Alexander the Great comes rolling into Jerusalem. Well, surely God's going to stand as our defense and get these Greeks and not let them, not let them destroy our land. But God didn't show up. And the Greeks, <laughs> they ran over everything. In 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes abolished the worship of Yahweh. He desecrates the temple by putting a pig on the altar. Why wasn't he slain? Where's God? In 134, Jerusalem is liberated from the Greeks by the Maccabees. It's Hanukkah. They enjoy about 100 years of independence. They rededicate a purified temple. But where is God? Where are the prophets? Where are the messages from God? Rome arrives with General Pompey in about 63 B.C. <laughs> Surely God's not going to let this happen. But Israel becomes a Roman province. Where's God? <laughs> is there a prophet? No. Along comes Herod, who decides to rebuild the temple to its former glory. He spends, what, a gazillion bucks rebuilding the thing. It's more beautiful than it has ever been. But where is God? Is the Shekinah glory, this glory of God, come back? No. And they as a nation have been trying everything they know how to do. They did a building program. They tried repentance. They tried ritual sacrifices. They tried opening and obeying the very letter of the law. What do you think the Pharisees are trying to do? If we just stay in here, we'll get God. But God doesn't show up. Is he just being a jerk? No. The covenant with Moses was, an, was a conditional covenant. If you obey, I will bless if you disobey, you're on your own. And so for 580 years, they were on their own. God is doing what he said he would do in the covenant he made with Moses. But, and in the story of God, there is always a beautiful but. But with God, there are two other covenants. One with Abraham and one with David. And those two covenants were unconditional. They didn't have to do anything. Abraham's covenant promised a people would continue, and it did. David's covenant promised an enduring kingdom with a king. And they wanted that kingdom, and they missed their God. And then Matthew says this, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. 
And when God shows up, he shows up as a tiny, vulnerable baby. A very conventional arrival, but with what? He carried the hope of Israel and the world. And there it is. There's the hope they had so longed for. God showing up again. There it is. Everything right there in Matthew chapter 1. God is back on the scene, this time in person. One more question. Where's our hope in the virgin birth? You know how Israel felt for 580 years, right? We go through periods of our life where we experience spiritual drought. Let's be honest. We all have those times. There may be days or weeks or even months where you just say, God, will you show up? And there are times we feel close to God, and there are times we don't. And you do all this stuff because you think that'll make God show up, and he doesn't show up. And in the low points of those cycles, we will do anything to feel the closeness of God. We'll do anything to get that back. And we'll waste years of our lives just seeking that closeness. Well, what do you do? Well, Israel had tried everything, folks. They had built a bunch of rules. They had built buildings. They had tried to get in control of their own government. They tried to modernize their faith. We do the same thing. And the effort was always on the side of the individual. We do the heavy lifting. We must be doing something wrong. But who is supposed to do the heavy lifting? Only God. God, you see, draws near to us. And most often we put in obstacles in the way of our walk with God. <clears throat> what is our biggest obstacle? It actually happens to be us and our pride. We think we have to do something, and then God will draw near. We have to get all this stuff right. But God doesn't love you because you do things right. God loves you because he's a God of grace. God is doing all the work. We just respond. He's busted into our world. And how should we react? Well, we should react with shock and awe. What's the solution to the silence sometimes we experience in our walk with God? Are you telling me it's just more of Jesus? That's well, too trite. It's, it's too simple. Well, maybe, but it's true. And we don't have time to flesh all that out this morning, but this I can say, if you listen to the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to flesh it out. Because the answer to the doldrums of life and the ups and downs of faith is here in the text. God wants you to see it. The answer is the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning, Matthew is setting the tone for what's to come in his gospel. God of his own will, motivated by his own desire, is coming near to flawed humanity. And he comes to our global mess. It's a mess in this globe which most of it probably isn't our fault. But he comes to our local mess, which probably is mostly our fault. 
And either way, God shows us his grace to people who are in desperate need of his grace because he shows up in the big messes of our lives and in the little messes of our lives. God is with us. There's no other solution to the human problem. None. We have been teased in Matthew 1. Here's the solution. This God who's been gone for so long that people forgot where to look for him. He's now here. He's not what they expected, but he's here. And this God promises hope. He promises a future. And our problems are still the same as they were in the first century. And we have the same need for grace that they had in the first century. And that grace came in the person of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. His coming was nothing skanky, but a miracle of God to prove the uniqueness of the Savior. Paul Harvey tells us of a man who didn't believe, you know, that God could take on human flesh. He was a very kind man, a decent family man, but skeptical about Christmas and decided one year, I just can't pretend anymore. And so on Christmas Eve, he told his wife that he wasn't going to church. You just take the kids. I, I just, it's, it's a farce. I can't believe it. So they went without him. Shortly after they left, the snow began to fall. And as he sat near the fire in his chair, reading the paper, he, started, he was startled by kind of a thudding sound on the side of his house. One, then another, then another. I thought, some kids throwing snowballs at my house. So he gets up, goes out to side to investigate, and he finds a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They'd been caught in a sudden storm, and they didn't know what to do. And they were searching for shelter, and they tried to use his window. It didn't work. So he thought, ah, I'll just open the barn up. So he puts on his clothes. He gets out there. He goes out and opens the barn so these birds could go in. They won't follow him. And he, he puts bird crumbs down across the snow. They're not going to follow him. He tried to catch them. He tried to shoo them in. He tried to do everything he could. But they just continued to flip and flop on the snow. He wondered, what can he do to save these frightened creatures from sure death? If I don't do something, they're going to die in the storm. And then he thought, ah, if I could only become a bird and speak their language then I could show them the way to safety in the barn. And as Paul Harvey tells the story, at that moment, the bells of the church ring and the falling snow and the scene is pictured of, of the Savior and His coming. And he finally understood the message of Christmas and he dropped to his knees in the snow. It is possible to believe in the virgin birth and the incarnation of the Savior and not be saved and not know God. Because salvation depends on us personally receiving the free gift of eternal life which God offers through His eternal Son who took on human flesh the Virgin Mary on that first Christmas, who offered Himself as the substitute for our sin on the cross. Because if God is truly with us in Christ, then we must come to God only through Jesus. And this morning then, we can have supreme confidence that the baby whose birth we celebrate is Emmanuel, 
God with us. The virgin birth is a sign from God that he entered the human race, that he stooped low to be born in a manger. They put him in a feeding trough for cows. The baby Jesus is deity in diapers. He's a king in a cradle. Who is that in yonder stall? Look, crown him Lord of lords and king of kings because no human process could have produced him. And we hang a banner of Bethlehem with these four words over Bethlehem, not made by man. On the human side, his mother is Mary, and God is with us. On the divine side, his father is God. God is with us. And the wisest scholars and the simplest believers, they kind of bow in the, before a manger in Bethlehem. But together they proclaim that this infant Jesus, born of a virgin, laid in swaddling clothes, is Lord and Savior. The God who has put up huge barriers to protect his holiness is here. The God whose glory left the temple because of the disobedience of Israel is now back. Four and four, fast forward a week. Guess what we'll talk about next Sunday? There's a certain star. The glory of God has returned. Explain it away, but that's the story. God is with us. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Do you remember our goals for Christmas? It's the first time I've ever like hammered you, harangued you every Sunday with what we're trying to accomplish. Two things. That in the midst of this crazy world, we might enjoy some peace. How? Because we can actually relax because the king is here. We don't have to keep looking for him. He is with us. Because you see, your problem is not another Trump presidency. Your problem is not the current Biden administration. Your problem is not a pandemic. Your problem is not being forced to wear a mask. Your problem is not them wanting to, to give you a vaccine. Your problem is not your marriage. Your problem is not your children. Your problem is not your job. Your problem isn't your bank account. Your problem is this. Do you know God? You, you've got all these problems, and we're all in the political realm. That's all the deeper they are, folks. Your real problem's down here. Where are you going to spend eternity? Where, how are you walking with God? And all of these other things are just around to point us to our bigger problem. Do you believe that Jesus will fulfill his promise to give to you eternal life? We can always go to God. We have a God who has forgiven our sin if we'll just ask. So enjoy some peace. Forget, turn off the news. I don't, but you do. <laughs> Second, in the midst of this crazy world, we might deepen our sense of the fear of the Lord. The king is here. That should cause some trembling. We should be excited and bow down in humble reverence. 
that we might experience the awe and the wonder that these days would lead us to a genuine expression and experience of worship. In our text, we've learned what the grace of God has done. Will you make that personal this year? When he came the first time, there was no room. They had to put him out in a cave, and they killed him. Will you make room in your heart for him today? Will you choose to bow the knee in worship of the one who was born of a virgin? Let's pray. Father, this season just reminds us of the, of the wonderful truth of the gospel, the good news. And let us not pass this season without acknowledging that personally. That nothing in this world would distract us from understanding that God is now with us. It doesn't matter how I feel. You are here. And what we need more than ever is to acknowledge your presence in our lives. That we might have peace and that we might worship the one born of a virgin. In Jesus' name, amen.